For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Grainger.com, or just stop by. Granger For the ones who get it done. Hi, I'm Kathy with a K. And I'm Kathy with a C. And this is Killer Destinations. Today's destination is New Britain, Connecticut. New Britain is about nine miles southwest of Connecticut's capital city of Hartford and was first settled in 1687. The name, of course, being a tribute to Great Britain. For a population that has just reached 75,000 residents, the city has produced a surprising number of professional athletes, George Springer, Carl Pavano, and Lamar Odom, to name a few. And you might know him from Kardashian fame, not the basketball court. That is true. New Britain also has the largest Polish population in Connecticut. But in 1992, for a young family of Polish immigrants, New Britain was transformed from their American dream into their American nightmare. In the early morning hours of December 21st, 1992, neighbors heard screams coming from a nearby apartment. Elizabeth Woldarczyk said that it was about 4.30 a.m. when she looked out her window to see a shadowy struggle inside an apartment where her neighbors, the Urbanskis, lived. Another neighbor, Woldzimmer Roszak, called the police when he heard the screams. The neighbors both said that they saw an individual inside the Urbanski home push out the screen of a second-story window, toss a duffel bag out the window, and then jump to the ground. They said the individual was wearing a ski mask, dark clothes, and boots, and appeared to be wearing gloves. Neighbors began running toward this person, and when the intruder saw them, he actually changed direction in order to elude these pursuers. Mr. Roshak was one of those who gave chase, throwing a baseball bat at this fleeing intruder because he wasn't close enough to either hit him with it or take him down himself, but he threw it at him and it hit his leg. Unfortunately, it wasn't hit hard enough for the intruder to actually stop. I love these neighbors. I do too. I know, like having good neighbors like this who are watching your back, I love it. And, and just making sure you're always okay. Yeah. So I actually had a recent incident happen, thankfully not to this level at all, but I was home on an early Friday morning several months ago when I usually wouldn't have been, and I heard screams. I kind of wondered if it was the kids down the street, wasn't sure, because, you know, you never really can tell. But mm -hmm. when I heard it again, I realized it doesn't matter if the kids are screaming. Somebody's screaming. It sounds like there's an alarm. And right. so I called 911. Mm -hmm. After that, I went downstairs to meet the police so that I could let them know I was the one who had called, but also let them know kind of where I thought the screams came from. Sometimes it's hard to tell a direction if you're only hearing it through a window. Exactly. So as the police came and I, I was starting to talk to them, this woman came from the front of a house, clearly with her clothes in disarray and hysterical. Obviously, she was the person who had been calling for help. As she's talking to the police, the next thing out of the house was this naked middle-aged man. Not something you want to see on a Friday morning. I talked to some of my neighbors afterwards. They too had heard the screams and they'd called police. And then one of them had looked up the city's arrest log that weekend. And it turned out it was a really good thing that we called 
because he was arrested on several counts, one of which was assault with intent to commit rape and felony kidnapping. Thank God you got involved. Thank God your neighbors got involved. I think it's it's so necessary. It's so necessary. It is. And and I, I think like the Urbanskis, I'm very fortunate to live in a neighborhood where everybody looks out for each other and will act. According to an article in the Hartford Current written by Bill Lucart, when police responded to the 911 calls and arrived at the apartment, they found 15-year-old Patricia Urbanski lying in a bed, bound with duct tape, with multiple stab wounds in her chest and neck. Officer Bernard Moreno was at the scene. He said the girl was barely alive, and when the tape was pulled off her mouth, she vomited. She was having trouble breathing and was unconscious and was never able to speak with those who were trying to save her. No adults were home at the time. The only other person police found at the scene that night was Patricia's sister. Patricia's sister was two years old and police found her crying in the room next to where her sister was found. The little girl was unharmed. Mrs. Urbanski rushed home from her graveyard shift at a factory where she worked. She arrived home at approximately 5 a.m. to find emergency medical personnel placing her daughter into an ambulance. Hysterical and speaking Polish, Mrs. Urbanski tried climbing into the ambulance to be with her daughter. She was not allowed in, and Patricia was rushed to the emergency room at New Britain General Hospital, where the 15-year-old died while in surgery without ever having regained consciousness. According to an article written by Suzanne Sadeline for the Hartford Current, Patricia was born in Poland. Mr. and Mrs. Urbanski had brought Patricia to New Britain, Connecticut four years prior. They then had a second daughter while living in Connecticut, and it was Patricia who had urged her parents to come to America so that they could have a better life. You know what I found interesting about that is that she was killed in 1992, which means they emigrated in 1988. So the wall, the Berlin Wall, fell in 89, and that's when, you know, the dominoes of the Eastern Bloc fell. So Poland was still a Soviet-controlled nation. So I I thought that was very interesting. And by the way, if you don't know what the Berlin Wall is, ask your parents. (laughs) (laughs) Or, Or ask your history teacher why they're not teaching you that in school. Exactly. Or what the Soviet Bloc was. Right. You know, the Eastern Bloc countries. But this was all a remnant of World War II, even though it had ended more than 40 years prior. You know, here's the funny thing. So your sister, my sister, and I went to Poland in 1991. We were only there for a very short amount of time. But the wall falls in 89. You know, the revolutions happen, like all the social revolution, and Poland opens up. So it wasn't the place that everybody went to visit. Like, it wasn't one of the very popular destinations for the former Eastern Bloc. Well, we went there. Nobody spoke English. I absolutely... Loved it. What'd you I loved, love about it? I The people were so friendly, even though we could not communicate in the same language. We're sitting in a coffee shop and two guys came over and took a napkin and they drew pictures. And so we figured out that they were firemen. Like they, everybody knew that we were American tourists. Because you looked like American tourists, exactly. I'm sure. Yeah. And, and, and you then, were probably wearing shorts and tennis shoes. We were, Exactly. And we had Levi's. Oh, there you go. And Levi's were super, super expensive in Poland at the time. And everything else was so cheap. We were, we were joking that we were Polish millionaires because the Zlotys, like the exchange rate was so favorable with American dollars. 
And I remember one night we went to dinner at a restaurant and they gave us this menu that we couldn't even read, of course. And so the woman, the waitress pointed to the menu, like, you're going to have this and you're going to have this. Of course, she wasn't speaking English. So we we're just like, we have no idea what they're going to bring us. But they brought us the most delicious dinner and we left some American dollars as a tip on the table. Oh, wow. And um, and tipping wasn't a thing back then in no, Europe. It and still isn't. It's, it's more popular but because there's like so many tourists, but whatever. It wasn't a thing back then. We we left the restaurant and she chased us down the street thanking us. Oh, that's so nice. Yeah, it was it was very cool. It was shocking and it was very cool. Now, Patricia and her mother had permanent residence, but her father could not obtain a green card because he did not want to be in violation of his immigration status. He was forced to go back to Poland the month before Patricia was attacked. As a result of his leaving, Mrs. Urbanski had to pick up a job working the graveyard shift in a warehouse packing boxes at a plant in Newington approximately five miles from the home. So on the night of Patricia's attack, she had only been babysitting her sister overnight for one month. New Britain, Connecticut has a large Polish community, so the Urbanskis were able to create relationships and make friends with those around them. According to an article in the Hartford Current written by Suzanne Satteline, the housing project on the west end of town where they lived was a treeless neighborhood of identical brick buildings. After school, Patricia stayed home to help her mother babysit her younger sister, and she also worked weekends helping an elderly woman who lived in Farmington. Patricia was said to be studious, and she wanted to be a nurse when she grew up. And this elderly woman was devastated when she heard of her death. And she said that she would be a very good nurse because she had a very big heart. Mrs. Urbanski had desperately wanted to move her family from their West End apartment. Patricia had been beaten up after school and became very nervous and fearful. Beginning in February of 1992, 10 months before Patricia was murdered, Mrs. Urbanski began pleading with the rental company to give them another apartment in another town, away from the bullying kids and the rampant crime in the housing project, but the answer was always no. Going back to the night of the murder, police stayed at the scene, talking to neighbors, collecting evidence, and photographing the crime scene. Through the course of conversation with neighbors, the police came to realize that there was a vehicle in the neighborhood that did not belong. It was a red Volkswagen Jetta, and when police ran the plate, it came back to a young lady named Carrie Standish. According to journalist Bill Lukehart, on the morning of Patricia's murder, Carrie woke up about 6.30 a.m. and went outside so that she could go to work. Her car was gone. She went back inside her boyfriend's apartment where she had stayed that night, and called her mother for advice on what to do about her stolen car. Mrs. Standish told Carrie that the New Britain police had called that morning asking about the Jetta as it had been found at a crime scene. As Carrie was speaking with her mother, her boyfriend Kevin King woke up. He told Carrie that he needed to tell her something. Kevin told Carrie that he and a friend took her car to a house that they planned to burglarize. They thought the house was empty, but it wasn't. Kevin told Carrie that he thinks the friend who was with him stabbed someone who had come out of a second floor room. Carrie Standish repeated her boyfriend's story when she was questioned by the police that morning. But police already knew that witnesses had only seen one intruder. And the little sister, who was almost three at the time, also told police there was only one man there. Kevin King, age 23, was arrested within hours of Patricia's murder. According to Meredith Carlson with the Hartford Current, the police took photographs of Kevin King with numerous scratches on his wrists, abdomen, chest, buttocks, and neck, which told police that Patricia put up a fight before her death. 
According to journalist Franz Silverman of the Hartford Current, the day after Christmas in 1992, five days after her death, over 800 mourners attended the funeral of Patricia Urbanski. Through an interpreter, Mr. Urbanski said his daughter represented all the hopes and dreams for the future of the family and that his family has lost its hope with Patricia gone. The Urbanskis also said they were touched and surprised by the outpouring of support from the community, as well as the non-Polish residents. Businesses in the area donated flowers and a reception site for the family after the funeral. And a funeral director stated that the cash contributions for the family filled a shopping bag. That's amazing. I know. I love it. I, it's like when something tra- and, and around Christmas. I, I know. I can't even imagine. And I it's just... something I feel like people have lost. Like, remember, like you, people used to bring food. Right. And now most people don't. Right. But also funerals were very shortly after the death of an individual. Yes. You know, that's now true. I, they've sort of expanded a little bit in time wise. Although it was the Urbanski's initial plan to take Patricia's body back to Poland for burial, they changed their minds. They decided to bury her here instead because she loved America. In March of 1993, three months after the death of their daughter, Mr. and Mrs. Urbanski laid Patricia to rest on a snowy Saturday morning in New Britain with 25 friends and relatives surrounding them. After Mass was said in Polish at Holy Cross Church, the cremated remains of Patricia were blessed by the Reverend and placed in a grave at Sacred Heart Cemetery. Trial began three and a half years after Patricia's death in March of 1996. Carrie Standish was a critical witness because she is the only person who directly linked Kevin King to the pre-dawn attack on Patricia. Carrie testified that Kevin used her red VW Jetta often and he knew where to find her spare key. Police believe that Kevin left Carrie sleeping in his room and drove the Jetta to the apartment. They say that he was scared away from the parked car by the neighbors who had awakened by the girl's screams, so he ran back home and then crawled into bed with Carrie Standish. According to Bill Lucart of the Hartford Current, Carrie testified when she awoke at 6.30 in the morning that Kevin was lying beside her, apparently asleep. She noticed that he had a red mark on his chest that wasn't there before. She also said she was a heavy sleeper because she worked two jobs and that it, quote, took a lot to wake me up. Carrie identified the gloves and ski mask that the police had recovered from a parking lot of a housing complex that was located along the route that a person would take if they were traveling on foot from the Urbanski home to Kevin King's home. She also testified that she received a phone call from him from jail after he was arrested. In the phone call, Kevin told her that he thought Patricia's younger sister had seen him. He was upset and said that the little girl would remember it for the rest of her life. He said she had seen him kill Patricia and he felt like he was going insane, that it must have been his childhood rage. Carrie testified that he said it was like he was having an out-of-body experience and that he knew he was in deep trouble. There was also a police officer, Officer Begley, from the New Britain Police Department who was working lockup when Kevin King was there. And he also took the stand and he verified Carrie Standish's testimony regarding this phone conversation from the jail. Oh, because he heard Kevin's side. Exactly. Officer Begley testified that when Kevin was done speaking on the phone, he came to the officer and asked, quote, what will happen to me after what I've done, unquote. Officer Begley simply said, I don't know. 
What do you think he was thinking when he said that? You know, he was thinking, <laughs> you're going to fry, mofo. <laughs> According to Bill Lucart with the Hartford Current, Dr. Mark Albini was the chief gynecological resident at the New Britain General Hospital who was called to the trauma unit that night to determine whether a stabbing victim had also been raped. As he testified, Dr. Albini could not hold back his tears and quietly wept during his testimony. He stated how he took samples from the body of 15-year-old Patricia Urbanski and gave them to two waiting officers. Dr. Ira Kampfer, a state pathologist who did the autopsy, stated that Patricia had been raped, strangled, beaten severely in the head, and stabbed seven times. Mary Beth Raffin, who was a forensic evidence expert with the Connecticut State Police Crime Lab, analyzed the fibers that were found on clothing that had been taken from Kevin King's washing machine. She stated that the fibers from an acrylic sweatshirt that had been found in Mr. King's washing machine were found on a pillow in the Urbanski apartment. She also testified that a discarded ski mask that police believed Patricia's attacker had worn had hairs on it that were similar to those of Patricia and Kevin King. Ms. Raffin further stated that hair and fiber evidence is not conclusive, that it can only show that such evidence is similar. It cannot show whether it came from a particular source. Audrey Lynch was a DNA profiling expert, and she testified that only one person in 500 million has blood with the same genetic characteristics as those found in the blood sample taken from the victim and the blood found on the gloves. A further DNA analysis of a sample of seminal fluid that had been taken from the victim's vagina indicated that it could have come from only 1% of the population, including the defendant. One of the first articles I read while researching this case was written by Suzanne Satteline, and it was December 23rd, so it was very shortly after Patricia was murdered. And according to the article, Mrs. Urbanski said that she did not know the man accused of killing her daughter or how the two might have known one another, but she found his name and phone number in her daughter's address book. So she knows the name of the person who's been arrested, and she looks through her daughter's address book. She must have been shocked to see it. How heartbreaking. Because wouldn't you assume he was a stranger? Oh, totally. Totally. And then there she finds it. Yes. You know, go ahead. Go ahead. I was was just going to say, I I think it must be really hard to be a journalist. I don't think I've truly appreciated how hard their jobs are in terms of how emotionally taxing it is because she's talking to the mother of a murder victim two days after her daughter had been killed. She can't love doing that. This woman's grief stricken and she's asking for personal details. So on one hand, you know you're going to get a good article that people are going to want to read. And on the other hand, you're watching a mother whose daughter had been murdered just in extreme anguish and crying as she's getting these words out. And all the reporter needs to do is keep asking more questions to make her keep telling her more, revealing more facts. Right, exactly. Knowing that it's hurting her to do it. I know. That would be hard. That would be hard. So what also came out at trial was how Kevin King and Patricia Urbanski were connected. So the police learn that Kevin had been introduced to Patricia by a mutual friend named Timothy Prevo. And this introduction took place within three weeks of her murder. Anyway, Timothy testified at trial and he said that he and Kevin had visited Patricia at her home. During that visit, Kevin observed the layout of the Urbanski home along with its contents, which included a stereo and a large television set. The defendant also learned 
that Mrs. Urbanski worked the graveyard shift. So after the visit to Patricia's home, Kevin, Patricia, and Timothy had several telephone calls together. Now, these telephone calls ended shortly before December 10th because that is when Timothy joined the Navy. Here's the thing, though. That actually makes a lot of sense because who does not expect parents to be home with their children in the middle of the night? So not only would he have known about Mrs. Urbanski's graveyard shift, but he would have known that her father had had to go back to Poland, and that's why she was there by herself with her sister. Exactly. And, and it's like, as a, as a family of the murder victim, you want to know, how did this happen to Patricia? Why? How did this monster come into our lives? Correct. Kath, why are so many dogs now suffering from health issues? Actress Katherine Heigl, who's helped save over 16,000 dogs through her foundation, said she's seeing more issues with joints, odors, and health than ever before. And after doing a ton of research, she feels there's one place we can look to improve any dog's health, their food. What she discovered is actually the way many dog foods are made can create toxins that could be wrecking our dog's health. And this is true even for many of the premium brands. Fortunately, she found that just by adding a few special superfoods to her dog's food, she saw a huge transformation in their health. She's made a 20-minute video explaining step-by-step how anyone can do the same thing to see incredible changes in their dog's health. And Kath, as you know, we have a schnauzer named Ollie. And even though my husband insists he is not, he is overly flatulent. (laughs) (laughs) After I started giving him this food, I swear there was a reduction in his smell. I love that. And I'll come over to your house now. (laughs) Exactly. Well, and you know, we have a Vishla we call Orange, and she's a senior dog. And over the last couple of weeks, she has actually had more energy to be running around the backyard with the younger dog, the Doberman we call Brown. Or crazy. A little bit. <laughs> so if you want to keep your dog healthy and happy, go to badlandsfood.com slash killer D and watch Catherine's video right now. Again, that's B-A-D-L-A-N-D-S. F-O-O-D dot com slash killer D. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of plan investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, For the ones who get it done. On April 10th, 1996, Kevin King was convicted by a jury of eight men and four women. 
He was convicted of one count of capital felony murder, sexual assault, and burglary. The state sought the imposition of the death penalty in the capital felony account, and the trial court conducted a separate sentencing hearing before the same jury. As you guys remember from the Denise Huber case, this is called the penalty phase. And in the penalty phase, the prosecution tries to introduce evidence of, you know, the terror, the horror, the depravity, and the defense tries to introduce mitigating circumstances. And they do this in the hope that the jury is not going to recommend the death sentence. In an unexpected move on the first day of the penalty phase, the prosecution produced for the very first time a five-page handwritten letter that they said was an attempt by Kevin King to have Carrie Standish killed before he went to trial. Surprise! Exactly. What are the defense always doing when they're upset? Hopping up and down. And that's what they were doing that day. I'm sure the defense attorneys were thinking, are you serious? We just went through an entire liability phase of a trial. You never gave us this evidence. And now on day one of the penalty phase, you're trying to get this introduced. Holy mackerel. And prosecutors don't understand why people don't trust them sometimes. For real. Honestly. So it turns out that this letter had been received three years prior and had been given to them by a confidential informant. So they said, they, the prosecutor said that they had been investigating the details of this case and that's why they didn't have to turn it over to the defense. Oh, so on the first day, here's the five page letter and the attendant handwriting analysis. And... We were investigating right up until yesterday. Exactly. (laughs) Therefore, we didn't have to give this to you. Right. Exactly. Now, this is, I am sure that there was a whole lot of argument about this, and I'm sure that it took place out of the earshot of the jury. Um, Usually when things happen like this in court that are unexpected and dramatic and pivotal, the judge excuses the jury and lets them go out into a hallway for a break, and the attorneys just argue and hash it out. So that means that everybody who's in there watching the proceedings, they stay. It's just the jury who leaves? Correct. Okay. The letter itself contained a first-person account of the events of the night of December 21st, 1992, and only could have been written by the murderer based on some of the details that were included in there. This is what the prosecution is saying. And it said, quote, when I found out that Kevin was arrested, I was shocked that's my, that's my ad, but I think it's probably true. Seriously. <laughs> I was shocked. I didn't mean for all that to happen. And then the, the note also said that it was Carrie Standish who implicated Kevin King after the police, quote, kept filling her head with thoughts. Thoughts? Like deep thoughts? Shallow thoughts? Knock, knock jokes? <laughs> exactly. What, what kind of thoughts? I don't know. We should ask her. Thoughts that would lead her to be like, oh, by the way, my boyfriend killed this girl. <laughs> Ex-boyfriend. Yes, true. The note also gave Carrie's address and directions to her home and refers to the fact that Carrie should be seen as having committed suicide. Mm. The note itself states that Carrie Standish is to be killed and these are the instructions. Thankfully, never happened. Exactly. The plot was never carried out. The plot was never carried out. Exactly. The plan that was detailed in this note, well, it was more like a letter if it was five pages, but the plan that was detailed in it said that Carrie Standish and a second victim would be killed. And it had to have been a male because it said that the second victim was going to write a note confessing to the crimes before he died. And it, women's handwriting looks nothing like men's. That is so interesting. Well, it had to be a male because they found semen. Oh, from the night of the attack. Exactly. Oh, that's true. Okay. So handwriting aside, it still had to be a male. Correct. 
the notes author actually admits to doing the killing and said that he had to kill Standish because, quote, Carrie was going to tell. She knew it. She knew too much. The judge basically says, whoa, whoa, whoa. I'm taking this under submission. I'm not making a ruling. Defense needs time to digest this and think about it. He admits the letter into the court record, not into evidence, but into the record. And he originally admits it under seal. So nobody can access it. Correct. And then uh, there was a journalist. Was it from the, what was it? The Hartford Current? The, the people who wrote most of exactly. this. <laughs> they file an objection and the judge reverses his ruling. So now, because it's part of the court record. It's public. Exactly. I'm sure it was front page headlines the next day. Oh, it was. And what, what did the judge say when, when the jury left this day? He said, ladies and gentlemen, avoid the press like the plague. Exactly. Well, okay. So the other thing that happened, though, is that as the defense counsel is having a chance to look at this letter and go through it, they noticed that there were notes on it from the handwriting expert that the police had used. The handwriting expert's notes referred to parts of the letter that weren't there. So the prosecution said, oh, our bad. Oopsie. Totally a mistake on our part. We didn't mean it. Didn't mean it. Still friends, right? <laughs> and had to produce the longer letter. So there were two letters. There were two letters. Of course, the prosecution denied wrongdoing. They say that they did not realize there were two versions of the same letter. So anyway, what happens is the court is, you know, I'm sure the judge's head was reeling and he had indicated to the prosecution that he was disappointed that they had not turned over the letter, but that they had not technically violated any laws. And I think the defense was saying, hey, wait a second. At some point, the confidential informant stopped playing with the prosecution. And that's when your investigation ended. And that's when you should have given us the letter. At this point, the prosecution then lets the defense know that Carrie Standish, who had testified during the liability phase of the trial, had been shown parts of the letter to try to identify the author. So I am sure the prosecution or the police showed her a portion of the letter and said, hey, does this look like Kevin's writing? So now the defense is like, what the heck? New trial. Yeah. What are you thinking? And so we can't we can't let this letter get admitted and the prosecution then backs down and says, you know what, we're, we're not going to admit the letter. And the judge is like, great, thanks. Let's move along. But because of all of this, the defense actually did a motion for a new trial and they subpoenaed Carrie Standish to testify at that hearing because they wanted to know how much of the letter she had read and was her testimony slanted because of what she had read, meaning if Carrie Standish had been shown incriminating parts of the letter for example, her murder. <laughs> Suicide. <laughs> right. Her Exactly. Would she have been, would her testimony have been different? So the, the defense attorney said that if they knew that Carrie Standish had known about the plot against her, they would have used that fact to challenge her testimony. Apparently the judge was incredulous and said, wow, you're telling me with a straight face, that's the question you would have asked on cross-examination. Did you know your boyfriend was going to kill you? The defense attorney's response to the judge was they would have used everything that they could have. Which is a good response, but you know they wouldn't have. Never. <laughs> Those aren't the answers you want to come out in court. That does not help your defendant yeah. at all. Isn't it true, Ms. Standish, that my client had a plot to kill you? <laughs> and make it look like suicide. Right. Anyway, eventually Carrie testified that she had only seen a small portion of the letter she didn't see any of those incriminating statements that we just discussed. 
So the motion for new trial was denied. And the letter was never entered into evidence. Correct. In an attempt to show mitigating factors, the defense called Elaine Pelletier, who was Kevin King's mother. They did this during the defense portion of the penalty phase. And again, they're trying to engender some kind of sympathy or understanding um, as to why he is the way he is, although there's no excuse. Right. Why he's a monster. Right. Anyway, so Elaine takes the stand and she talks about her own history of incest, violence, and emotionally abusive parents, and then basically says, and the same kind of stuff was visited on my son. So she testified that her son was a victim of incest as a young child. Oh my gosh. I know. And later as an offender. So the family tradition basically perpetuated itself, you know, which is how it happens. Right. I mean, you always hear about that. Children of alcoholics become alcoholics. Children of abusers become abusers. Exactly. You have to be the person who can be very specifically aware of your history and say, no, it ends here. Break the cycle. Exactly. So anyway, Elaine testified that the man that Kevin believed was his father was not actually his father. It was a man who came into her life while she was pregnant with him, and he was super abusive. He would make her steal things. He, he just was a generally horrible person, and he favored his two biological children. With her? Correct. And so Kevin had two younger siblings. He bore the brunt of the abuse. What finally made her leave when Kevin was nine years old was that his father, and I'm putting father in quotes, beat him with a belt, and his mom counted 27 lashes. Oh, my gosh. On a nine-year-old. And so the next day, her husband went off to work, and she took the kids to a battered woman's shelter. Finally. Yeah. And and I'm not saying that. I mean, honestly, I can't imagine how hard it is to leave that kind of situation, especially when you've been raised in it. But I also look to parents. Your responsibility is to protect your children. Mm -hmm. So... This is the woman who basically was trying to give perspective to Kevin's crappy childhood. And I do know that there was a man, a local man, who kind of took Kevin in. He called himself a foster parent. He called himself a friend of the family. But Kevin lived on and off with this guy throughout the year. So Kevin clearly never had a stable upbringing, never had any kind of role model as to what a father was supposed to be. And again, this is not an excuse for any of his behavior. It is simply what happened at the trial. Right. It's background information on how he got to where he was. But you know what? Honestly, there are plenty of people who have terrible childhoods childhoods, and they turn out perfectly fine and they choose not to kill. Exactly. The trial court imposed a judgment of life in prison without the possibility of parole on the capital felony count. Sentence. I judge. They sentence. (laughs) (laughs) You do judge. Okay. It was a judgment, but yes, they did sentence him It was him a judgment, well. and they sentenced him. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but just days before he was sentenced, Kevin King attacked a female jail guard. She had let him out of a cell to make a phone call, and he came out of the cell wielding a homemade knife that had been fashioned from a fan blade, which, where did he get access to a fan blade, is my question. But you know, at this point, he's been in jail for three years, or he's been incarcerated oh, for three years, true. so he's not, he's savvy at this point. Okay, so what's the difference between a shank and a shiv? I, I know a schlock. I Okay, I'm not even sure what a schlock <laughs> is. I learned this in prison break. Okay, they I know have... what a schlong is. <laughs> I don't know if there's a difference between a shiv and a shank. There I don't has know. to be, but I'm going to tell you what a schlock is. Okay. A schlock is when you put batteries into a sock. And you use that as a weapon. Aha. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Thank you, prison break. Thank you, prison break. Exactly. Okay. 
So King was wielding a homemade knife that he'd fashioned from a fan blade when he overpowered her, beat, and stabbed her. He then removed her uniform, tied her to a metal bunk. And I got to tell you, I thought the removing of the uniform meant that he would rape her. Same here. But instead it meant that because he was, can you call a guy petite? He was petite. He was five foot five. Diminutive? Diminutive. There I like go. that word. That's a $5 word. There you go. Because That's a was... $5 word for tiny. Because <laughs> <laughs> he was a little fella. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> he then actually tried to stroll out of the jail wearing her uniform. Now, the next part is great. Control booth guards who clearly had never worked at the prison in Salt Lake City. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. Who were on it. And if you haven't heard that episode yet, it's episode two. You're going to want to listen to this. But they didn't recognize King as a guard. So they sounded an alarm. King bolted down a corridor, chased by several guards. All of this had happened at the Hartford Correctional Center. And according to journalist Rachel Gottlieb, he was caught eventually and beaten by two other guards. He then sued the guards in court. And get this, a jury of four men and four women deliberated on his civil rights claim for five hours and awarded him more than $2,075,000. I know. So, and wait, and two million of that was punitive damages, wasn't it? Correct. Correct. So, for a man who had tried to kill a guard. However, you have to consider the fact that, according to some of the testimony at that trial, he was kicked and punched while laying in a fetal position with his hands behind his back, and he was handcuffed. And different cards at different times took out what they considered jailhouse justice. Okay. So he was alleging forty-five minutes of being sprayed with pepper spray, handcuffed, beaten. And the jury agreed with him. So they said, here, 75 grand represents your compensatory damage. We're compensating you for your emotional pain and suffering, your medical injuries. But $2 million is to tell the Hartford Correctional Center, this is not acceptable. You got to train your guards okay. better. Exactly. But however, it is so unpalatable to have a murderer get a $2 million judgment. And that's where my, my whole problem with this is. Right. Like, you know, you're you're pissed off at the justice or the injustice of the situation. When the Urbanski family learned about Kevin King being awarded more than $2 million, they were offended at the notion that he would have any money in his pocket. They filed a complaint seeking damages under a personal injury law that said that victims of sexual assault were allowed to sue their assailants up to 17 years after the victim turned 18. Normally, wrongful death lawsuits have a two-year statute of limitation, which, of course, had expired long prior to this time. Part of their claim was filed on behalf of Patricia Urbanski's little sister, who, as you may recall, was just under three years old at the time of the murder. Being forced to watch her sister being sexually assaulted and sexually exploited, their attorneys argued that this law should apply to her. According to the lawsuit, Patricia's little sister was taken from her parents' room where he was assaulting Patricia, and she was locked in her own room from where she could hear her sister's screams. Years after the incident, the girl remains traumatized. The family had never sought wrongful death damages because they never thought the king would ever have any money to pay it, so it wouldn't have been worth the expense for them to hire attorneys in order for them not to be awarded anything. Nobody in their right mind would have thought that he would have gotten more than $2 million in the future. Norman Pattis, who was Kevin King's attorney in this lawsuit, told the Urbanskis that King was willing to offer them some of his award money if the state agreed to not appeal the jury's $2 million verdict, thereby giving the Urbanskis around $1 million. 
although ultimately the judge struck down the award of $2 million in punitive damages. A judge reduced the verdict to $375,000 saying, no, 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 no. That's outrageous. That's excessive. We're bumping it down to three seventy-five. So still a problem. We acknowledge that, but the $2 million in punitive was too much. Correct. But the good news is, is that Kevin King never saw a dime of this money, and it went correctly to his victims. It went to the female jail guard who he had tried to kill. It went to the Urbanski family. And it went to two insurance companies who had actually paid the Urbanski family $1.7 million under a previous settlement. And lastly, it went to his attorney, who was the one who prosecuted the civil rights suit against the jail guards. So the nice thing is, this guy didn't see a penny. Perfect. Kevin King, now aged 48, was transferred out of state and is now incarcerated at the Massachusetts Correctional Institute at Cedar Junction, where he will remain for the rest of his life. As it should be. Agreed. Thanks for listening to us. In addition to the reviews, please hit us up on all of our socials. We are at Killer Destinations Podcast, and we'd love to hear from you. If you have anything to say, any cases you might want to suggest, or just want to chat, please let us know. Thanks so much. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.